Make sure to give my dad a five-star review. Get, make sure to like and subscribe to his YouTube. And thank you for listening and enjoy the show. show. <laughs> I was watching people work day and night, and then our message and every all the work that we were trying to do consistently get undermined by what was happening in the Oval Office. Um, the undermining of Vice President Pence, too, at times. Um, and it was hard to watch the shift in him as well um, along the way on things that he went along with that I don't necessarily think he agreed with. Um, I certainly heard him express displeasure at times. Um, but it really just goes to show when you end up in some, such an environment, like how, I mean, a lot of the time, evil, evil wins. Um, regardless of where you are. Hey, welcome, Faithful Politics listeners and viewers. Uh, my name is Will Wright. I am your political host, and I'm joined by the ever-faithful Josh Bertram. And this week, we have a wonderful, phenomenal guest named Olivia Troy. Um, and we are uh, so excited to have her. She uh, worked in the Trump administration as Vice President Pence's Homeland Security and Counterterrorism Advisor, um, as also worked on the Coronavirus Task Force, and and is now the director of the Republican Accountability Project. And we have a ton of questions for her. So thank you, Olivia, yes, thank for being you. here. Oh. Yeah, I'm excited to join you all, and I'm looking forward to our conversation. And hello to everyone yeah, so, who's listening. So when Will was reading all that, <laughs> so, I felt like I needed to like bow before you and like uh, you know somehow pay homage or pay taxes or something. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, I'm a big advocate that you should always pay Same your taxes, here. but <laughs> only give them only give them yes, yes. only yes. give them exactly what you owe and nothing more. That's that's my idea. <laughs> That's right. Well, well, we're we're gonna we're gonna dive deep into a lot of different uh, topics uh, that are happening in the news right now. But before we do that, I I've got to ask you because you have like a lot of experience in national security, homeland security, um, intelligence. Um, what what's the deal with UFOs? Can you can you can you break news <laughs> and, and tell us that the Havana syndrome is a result of UFO attacks? Like, like <laughs> what, what what do you know? Well, I'm not a UFO expert as much as I did want to be an astronaut when I was young. So <laughs> that's about the extent of my expertise on space. I did go to space camp. So I guess by that de facto, by that definition, I maybe I am an expert these days, <laughs> depending on who you ask. <laughs> but uh, you know, I, you know, I, I don't know. I keep an open mind. I, I think there's a possibility that UFOs are real. I'm not a, you know, I'm not a conspiracy person on it. Um, <laughs> but I, I don't know. I think that there could be life on other planets. I don't rule it out. I mean, you know, here we are on planet earth and I'm, you know, <laughs> I, I don't know. I don't know what life is like on other planets. Um, but I certainly, you know, I think the reports of the military you know, I've heard from um, unconfirmed, <laughs> I've heard from colleagues um, at the Department of Defense mm-hmm. who have said there is some reporting there and they don't know how else to explain it. And yeah. um, 
And I don't know, you know, I, I don't know, we could be looking at this 50 years from now and there'll be an alien sitting next to the next person who's on a Zoom call or whatever technology <laughs> is and we'll be like the Jetsons and and then someone will look back and be like, you know, you were wrong to question that it was real. So, I mean, stranger uh, things have happened. Right? <laughs> so, this, this is um, true. Yeah. I, I was I was telling somebody, you know, um, that w- probably one of the, the most beneficial things uh, above, like, in addition to a lot of other things that came out of Trump's last uh, coronavirus, you know, plan was the formation or the um, the release of like this UFO report in June, I think it, it is. Um, so I'm 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 definitely looking forward to that. But that's not the reason we brought you on the show. <laughs> but um, um, so so you did work in the White House. And I was wondering if you might be able to start us off a little bit about, you know, like what it is you did in the White House. I, I kind of mentioned it briefly in the intro, but it's probably not doing you any sort of justice because I know that you you did a lot of stuff. And, and I'd love for you just to kind of educate our listeners on that. Yeah, so I spent um, almost two and a half years on Vice President Pence's staff. Uh, look, I, I will still say today it was an honor to be able to serve um, in the office of the Vice President uh, because not everyone gets that opportunity, especially as a career intelligence officer. Uh, and so I I took that role very seriously. Um, and every day I would say that I walked in the White House, you know, through the White House gates and every late night that I spent there working very long hours I would always take it in. Um, you know, I I always remember walking out of the Eisenhower Executive Office building and looking over at the West Wing, and I always took a pause um, to appreciate the fact that um, this is an amazing place that I was working in, regardless mm-hmm. of of politics. It was a people's house, and I never really forgot that. And I forgot, you know, and I always thought about the people out there who don't get the opportunity to come to DC or don't get to experience that. Right. And here's a little, you know, I'm a person who grew up in El Paso and never in a million years that I think growing up back then on a border town that I would be walking the white house grounds at such a senior level and really getting to advise on serious issues. And so, you know, I had the Homeland security portfolio. It was very challenging. Um, I think many of my colleagues on the national security team would say to me that they never would ever want the portfolio I had because it was, um, domestic facing a lot of the time. And, you know, there's one crisis after another. It was dealing with natural disasters and hurricanes and tornadoes and, um, you know, challenges to our critical infrastructure and what was happening in cybersecurity to mass shootings, which were abundant and still remain abundant today. Um, and um, the aftermath of that and the pain that you see the families go through and just the fear that those that still exist on a daily basis of when events happen. Like that, and then you know, touching upon some immigration issues um, that really fell more on the domestic policy side of the house, but it was certainly something that I tracked because I was uh, detailed from the Department of Homeland Security. Um, immigration and border security are issues that fell in my portfolio as well, and then I had um, emerging events globally. So I tracked global counterterrorism efforts. Um, I actually have more. I have an extensive background in counterterrorism. Mm-hmm. I was mostly focused for a really long time on global terrorism, um, focused on the Middle East region. I had deployed to the Middle East region. Um, and so I had the Middle East and Africa portfolio. And a lot of people don't realize, like, <laughs> you know, it was crazy because that, since I had the homeland portfolio, my colleague left um, that covered Latin America. So for seven months, I was also the Latin America and Western Hemisphere <laughs> advisor wow. on the team. Um, 
And so it was really just sort of juggling um, a bunch of portfolios. It kind of sort of crossed over each other. Um, And because of that, I was the de facto United Nations (laughs) advisor. (laughs) And so, um, so I was the lead for taking Vice President Pence to the United Nations General Assembly Week. And tracking head of state engagements and trying to make sure that he was engaged in a policy level. He really, he really wanted to be more engaged policy wise. Um, and he wanted to kind of take, take steps in that area. Um, and you saw him do this on issues like Venezuela, which I, um, didn't start off covering for him. My colleague did, but once my colleague left, I had to lift the portfolio and take over for him. On it, um, and so I really just kind of saw firsthand what was happening in the tri-border region in Latin America. Um, like it's a passion of mine because I I grew up on the border. I have a passion for Latin America. I wrote my college thesis on, um, actually my master's. I wrote it on transnational organized criminal organizations, and I actually wrote it on about Hezbollah in the tri-border region and what was happening mm. there. So. Wow. Um, so, you know, I, I covered a lot of different things. Um, I think I was referred to as a bad news bearer on that team. <laughs> when I was walking down the hall, it was usually not because I was coming to tell you anything positive or good news. In fact, when I did, it was like oh, a Lord. shock to people that I was, you know, it's so-and-so's birthday and they're like, oh, thank God. Okay. I was you like, you know, there was a mass shooting or there was, a tornado that just took out, a, you know, one of our towns or something like that. And I'm like, no, I was just calling to tell you that we have cupcakes. <laughs> cupcakes <laughs> in the break room. <laughs> yeah, cupcakes in the break room. No need for alarm. Oh, my word. That's my, so <laughs> one, one thing that it makes me think is that I've dealt with like uh, volunteers and um, not nearly anything as important as national security, but um, uh, volunteers and or, or like when somebody leaves like a small business, my wife and I planted a church and it's kind of like, you know, having a small business as a nonprofit. But I guess it's it's interesting to hear that like the vice president of the United States will deal with the same staffing issues that like a small nonprofit will deal with. Like when someone leaves, you like everyone else has to take up all this like other burden. And it's like people are getting burned out and you're like, but I don't know where anyone else is. You figure that like the vice president, you know, they'd be able to get someone in there quick. But I guess you deal with the same issues, don't you? Yeah, I mean, it's, you know, it's a vetting process um, and a clearance process. And then also it's just sort of um, I think for Vice President Pence, you know, I'm sure that it is uh, that calculus has changed on me more recently, but it's really about building trust. and and having a team that um, he felt comfortable around. He's very, he keeps his cards very close um, to his chest and he, uh, it takes a while to build um, that rapport with him. Uh, but, you know, I mean, I think, I think I was very I, fortunate. Some people would say that's unfortunate. I know there are a lot of people who do not like Mike Pence, um, but, you know, I got to see the vice president a lot and I never yeah. took that for granted. Um just because it was, you know, it's still the vice president of the United States. And, um, and I, I was, you know, my job wasn't really to weigh in on politics and the politics side of it. My job was really to stick to facts and to just give him the information about what was happening to inform him. And then it was up to the more political side of the house to decide how they were going to handle, handle it. Did I vocalize an opinion at times? Surely. Mm-hmm. You know, I would say um, mostly like things, you know, I, I look like he never referred to, the pandemic or the virus as the Kung flu, right? I was mm-hmm. adamant that that would be very inappropriate. I was concerned at 
what that would mean for hate crimes against yeah. Asians and hurting Chinese businesses and everything. I just thought that that was just completely disrespectful of what was really happening here on a pandemic that people were yeah. suffering from in China and globally and here domestically. And so, mm. and he, and he would listen to things like that. I mean, you know, it was, so yeah, I mean, it was a very complicated role, yeah. I would say. Um, and I worked very closely with people on the national security council uh, and they were my, they were my colleagues and team and people that I had a lot of respect for uh, that were also career people assigned there. And we just tried to navigate and do the best we could, um, you know, mm. in a, in a challenging environment. And it's always challenging, right? I've worked uh, closely with people on the national security council throughout the past 20 years of my career. I've been to meetings there. I understand really how the U S government and the national security apparatus works and comes together to make, you know, inform policy decisions or how policy gets made in the government. And that was no different except for, I think that it was a different kind of environment that we were facing um, in the, in the former administration. Yeah. Now, now Olivia, how did, how did you get into the national security arena or, you know, what, what, what interests you um, about it? And I, because I'm, 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 I'm really intrigued. Um, Josh and I yesterday spoke, I think, but with, with a colleague, a colleague of yours, uh, Paul Rosenweig, and uh, he, <laughs> he was explaining to us, which we haven't recorded yet, but um, about how he got into cybersecurity, and we just thought it was really fascinating. <laughs> so I'm, I'm curious on like, like, how did you get into what you're doing? Yeah, look, I started actually in politics. Um, I started at the Republican National Committee very early on. I interned there. I was an Eisenhower intern. I um, did political campaign and education and coalition building with uh, Latinos and um, just uh, different coalitions. And I started in political campaign training um, originally. And I was inspired by uh, Mexican-Americans serving in Congress, um, some of the first ones. And so that's really where I politically started my career in. And then 9-11 happened. And that was really where things changed for me because I um, I wanted to be more sort of on the policy side of the house. I really wanted to um, work to ensure that nothing like that ever happened again or work to kind of counter that. Um, and so that's where you know, I started my career early on in the Pentagon. Um, so I tell people I grew up around mm. the military because... You know, I was in my early 20s and that really shaped my career. And, um, you know, it definitely made me a morning person because I was not a morning person. <laughs> um, but let me tell you, some uh, I had this army colonel who really kicked my butt into shape. Because so, <laughs> he was like, yeah, we're not strolling in here at 830 in the morning in the Pentagon, young lady. You know, <laughs> I'm here at five o'clock getting the coffee going. And, you know, three hours later, they were already halfway through the day already and I'm rolling in. And so that was, that was a good lesson for me, I think early in my career. Um, and it really, uh, you know, it, it taught me a lot of, um, I think good life skills to be around such an incredible apparatus of people who had been deploying and who really had, um, defense and national security experience early on, uh, that I think really molded, uh, my view of the world and getting to work around such expertise at such, such a young age. I know that I was very fortunate that, especially as a civilian, right? Getting to, uh, you know, I deployed um, to Iraq. I was Ambassador Bremer's aide, believe it or not. And so, um, and I got to work with people like Ambassador Kennedy and some really great minds who really understood 
a lot of the global dynamics um, firsthand. And I knew General Myers, I got to fly on his aircraft. And, you know, all of these moments sort of, um, I never took for granted, because I was always, you know, I, I was, it was always a reality check for me to be like, how did I end up here around these people as, you know, a 20 something year old civilian? And look, I was junior, I'm not claiming that I was, you know, solving the world's problems. I know, like, I've <laughs> I've heard some of my colleagues claim that, and I'm like, no, you weren't. Come on. I was getting coffee <laughs> and scheduling. That's where yes. we all start. Yeah. Right? And, and <laughs> but I will say it is important to mm-hmm. be respectful yeah. to the staff and the people that are getting you in coffee and scheduling because they will make or break you sometimes. I agree. <laughs> and they see and hear everything. That is, that is <laughs> amazing. You know, I something you said a little bit earlier that um, that kind of cued me into a question that we had was like, it, it something to the extent that it was, it was working. It was the 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 environment and working in the Trump administration. You had made a um, you know uh, an, an allusion to that, and you know we we've had some people on that were former well not not former Republicans. They still I, I believe um, you know consider themselves Republican, and yet they don't like where the Republican Party is headed. Um, or where it seems like it's heading, like someone like Joe Walsh was on a few weeks ago, or Amanda Carpenter, um, we had on, um, and they had a turning point though, where they decided that um, enough was enough, you know. And part of what's so interesting to us is like, what was the tipping point for you? Um, in that, as much as you feel comfortable, you can share. Stay with us. We'll be right back. Hey there, Josh Bertram here, faithful host of the Faithful Politics Podcast. I want to let you know about a compelling new spinoff, the Faith Roundtable, where I'll be interviewing top faith leaders, theologians, and scholars to unpack the pressing issues that are shaping the church in America today. We'll dive into topics like faith and public life, social justice, and how we can engage our communities more effectively. Make sure you don't miss any of our enlightening conversations by subscribing to it on our YouTube channel. Join me at the Faith Roundtable, where deep discussion meets thoughtful insight. No, I think, um, like, I will be honest and say that I, as a Republican, um, at, the, at you know, I started to have concerns starting actually back in the Tea Party days mm. when it really started to surface because I not with everybody that was involved in that group, but I felt that some of the rhetoric was, was leaning towards more extreme statements. Um, And, you know, look, I am a daughter of immigrants. Um, I was a first generation college student. I, my mom is from Mexico. She grew up on the border. She grew up in Juarez, uh, Mexico, which is always, Mm. always a lot of the time in the news as you're familiar. Um, But my parents raised me with very conservative values and, and really with the goal of that you, you of hard work pays off and that the American dream was mm-hmm. possible, but no one was going to, no one was going to give it to you. You were going to have to work every single day towards that goal. And so I think the tea party, some of the things that were happening sort of gave me pause. Um, but, you know, I always, you know, I, I looked up to people like John McCain. Um, I grew up in Texas. So I, 
was a supporter of President Bush. I was a, I, you know, I was a Schedule C is what they call us, a political appointee very early on in the Pentagon under the Bush administration um, after 9-11. Um, but I think as Trump became the candidate um, and becomes, you know, the primary nominee for the Republican Party, I found a lot of his, his rhetoric offensive right. and I found it very divisive. And it was hurtful. And I was concerned about the direction um, of the country under someone like that and what it would mean um, going forward and the long-term implications of that. And I certainly saw that play out firsthand. Um, You know, and I, my job is really in the White House um, as a career intel officer, but I, I saw the travel ban, as it's called the executive order get launched. I saw a lot of the border security things. And and some of the things I think were important reviews that needed to happen to get fixed were, you know, we we actually improved screening and vetting right. processes um, for travelers and things like that that were legitimate things that I think the national security community worked on, right, as a team holistically of professionals who were really looking at this from a very fair way. But there were also extreme things happening where it was very obvious that Stephen Miller had a very, very extreme agenda that he was trying to push under the guise of these other things. And that I think was very concerning for me. Um, I think one of the lowest points being in that environment was like things like the child separation. Hmm. That was hard. It was hard to watch that happening. Um, especially as someone who I, who, you know, who understands the plight of these families and the struggle and, and at what that was like, and my border town certainly took the brunt of it, right? I mean, they were they were trying to figure out how they were going to handle this. They're still trying to figure out how to handle what's happening at the border today. And that, for me, it was like, why aren't we actually fixing the immigration system? Like, why are we mudslinging mm-hmm. instead? Why are we not coming together to really actually figure out a solution? Because so many presidents have struggled with this problem on the border, mm-hmm. right? This isn't anything new. Um, and I think that was where my heart was in on it. And it was challenging. Um, I think the last straw, which it's probably for, um, you know, if you've been tracking, like when I decided to speak out was, was really when it came to the COVID pandemic, it was, it was something that I think was so detrimental early on, on something that we knew was going to be a big deal. And I was very disturbed about what was happening um, in terms of the honesty, uh, or I mean, I would say like the lack of Hmm. honesty of communicating to the public on what this was really going to be, how people were going to be affected, and really the playing of, honestly, red states and blue states, Republican and Democratic states against each other. Because for me, as a national security professional, we needed to be united against this invisible enemy, right? I mean, it was not, it was, there was nothing partisan about it. It was about actually protecting Americans which would eventually lead to protecting the economy, right? Because it was going to damage the economy. And so it was, to me, it was all one comprehensive crisis that we were responding, responding to. And then morally at some point, I just, I was watching people work day and night and then our message and every, all the work that we were trying to do consistently get undermined by what was happening in the Oval Office. Um, The undermining of Vice President Pence too, at times. Um, And it was hard to watch the shift in him as well um, along the way on things that he went along with that I don't necessarily think he agreed with. Um, I certainly heard him express displeasure at times. Um, but it really just goes to show when you end up in some, such an environment, like 
how, I mean, a lot of the time evil, evil wins, um, regardless of where you are. Um, and I think that that was just, um, to me really disturbing on a whole new level, which gets to today, right. On what's happening and, and mm-hmm. why I'm involved in the Republican accountability project, because I think what's happening is it, it's one lie now after another. And I think when you normalize and mainstream things like that, it's no longer responsible governing. It's not why people think that you run for office because you want to make a difference. This is, this is different. Yeah. So, so, so with, with regard to the the Republican accountability project, um, you got you guys produced a um, like a, a report card a, a couple of weeks ago um, that I thought was really really fascinating. I and I I sorted them all just to kind of see who were like you know the A plus people, <laughs> and then sorted it the other way to see who are the Fs, you know. And like nothing really stood out or was surprising, you know. But but what I what I was curious was, you know, some of the names on there that were A's that we just don't hear much from or we don't hear them in the media very often um which 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 kind of gets me to my other question it seems like when you when you rally or rebuke trump um there there seems to be kind of this divergent um path that one you know may end up um being exposed as you know like you may be a super loyal person and then end up in jail like michael cohen you know or you may come out against trump and you know be ostracized by by many in in your party probably like yourself i'm sure like joe walsh and like like a bunch of others you know and and i and i'm curious on like what what um impact or what um support does the does the you know Republican accountability project lend to sort of like those disenfranchised Republicans out there? Yeah, I think, you know, as part of of the accountability project, we we really are trying to support people who took a stand for our democracy and, and their oath, right, to the Constitution and really chose the country over the party. And I think it's important, like people like you, Liz Cheney, I mean, you may not agree with all of her politics. She's obviously very conservative, right? I mean, she didn't get kicked out of or removed out of leadership for her policy positions because she certainly <laughs> represents conservatism through mm-hmm. and through. Mm-hmm. Um, she got kicked out of the leadership position because she was basically just speaking the truth. Um, I mean, she was not going to go along with this lie. And she was, uh, you know, pointing out that this was, fundamentally undermining our democratic process and our elections. And this was a dangerous road to go down. Um, And she's someone who speaks from looking at it globally, like I do, right? You take a step back from the national security standpoint and you watch what happens to other countries. And you, you know that democracy is fragile and you have to care for it. And it's very easily to go down the path where you destroy your democracy. And I think that's something that is not lost on me. And it's something I think that really um, Americans should really be paying attention to, because I think it's it takes all of us as Americans to really kind of defend our democracy and protect it. Um, and you know, I um, I think you I think these individuals who have been outspoken are going to face tough primaries. You will see more of the MAGA, more extreme uh, movements within the Republican Party challenge them. And I think it's important to let them know that we have their backs and that we will be there to support them. Because I honestly think that, you know, we are, we're in a two-party system right now, and it benefits nobody to have a Republican Party in the state that it, it currently is in. 
Mm. Right. It, it doesn't, it doesn't help. Um, I think it needs to be a healthier party. I think it's important to have, you know, people in office um, and to support the moderate voices out there. There's a whole group of moderate Republicans or former Republicans who have left and people who are center right or in the center. Raising your hand who are trying to figure out like where they fit in now. And, and it's hard. And I think it's going to be important to push back on some of these dynamics. You know, I talked to some of my um, big, you know, Democrat friends who, um, who I adore and I've been friends with for a long time. And a lot of them are just like, no, it's going to be blue across the country. And I was like, look, the reality is that that's just not true. Um, and for me, I want there, you know, if there is a red state or if there is a red district, I want it to be an actual like conservative who believes in democracy and to doing what's right for the country and coming together to the table to figure out how we solve problems. That is what I want to represent that district. I don't want a Matt Gates in office. (laughs) I don't want a Marjorie Taylor Greene in office. And that is principally where we're at. Yeah. You know, it's, it's interesting. Cause like, so, so Josh is a conservative, I'm liberal. Um, and part of, I guess my, my interest in what's going on is I, I, I kind of feel like that, that gif of like Michael Jackson eating popcorn, like watching people have arguments, you know, like, and, and part of my, my fascination is like, I wonder where this is going to lead, you know, like, is, is it just going to be the complete Trumpification of the entire Republican party? And like, what is that going to look like? And is Trump going to be nominated the Speaker of the House? You know, <laughs> like, and, and and like, just from a from a purely academic standpoint, I'm somewhat intrigued. But from just a pragmatic standpoint, I'm terrified. You know, yeah. um, and 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 I and I just don't know like what what to expect. So so like, how do how do you um, how do you see this panning out? Like, if you were if you were a historian a hundred years from now, looking back at this time, how would you predict this whole thing kind of, you know, ending? I think there's like, there's, there's no denying that Trumpism has a hold of the party of the Republican party right now. That is, that is really the stronghold and that is the base. And I don't think that we are going to see that fade anytime mm-hmm. soon. As you know, I've been told, and I'm actually very depressing when I talk about this topic, that I paint a very grim picture. So I'll apologize now in advance for saying that. But I think that that is just reality um, and something that you know I've accepted. And I know that that is where it is. But I think that it's going to take a few years um, for the party, I think, to basically implode. And all we can do is um, try to push back as much as we can and like I will say it first, I, I I don't have a problem. I mean, for me, it's about the country over a party. And my loyalty is to our constitution yeah. and to America and to the American people. That has always been my loyalty in my career. And so if it means supporting a moderate Democrat as a recovering Republican or radically moderate conservative, as I refer to myself these days, <laughs> what that means really, but that's how I feel these days. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I will do it because I think that that matters. And I don't, I don't have a problem with that. I, I am not, I am not one of those people that is like, uh, it doesn't matter. I'll support MAGA, the least of MAGA or no, that is a red line for me. <laughs> and so I, it, it, I, you know, I am not a person that's like Republican, no matter what, 
not in this moment and not, this is not where I think, and I know that I'm might not be, I'm probably in the minority on that right now. There are a lot of people who say, you know, no, it's, you know, I'm a lifelong Republican. That's my identity. Well, I, yeah, I get that. I was there and I completely understand that. (laughs) But I think that it is important that at some point you're going to have to make a choice and you have to say that what's happening is not okay. And you're not, and you don't waver on it. And that is where I and am. And that today. makes a lot of sense to me. I feel like I'm a political orphan, you know, where, um, <laughs> you know, I had some, I had some parents that were there, you know, politically. And then now it's like, I don't know, like you said, I don't know where I belong. Where's my family? Like, it's not, it's not the far right. And I think about I, one of my favorite phrases is from a very, you know, very conservative, um, uh, uh, Christian evangelical Christian leader, but he says, you know, the, the, the Christian, right. If you don't like the Christian, right, you're really not going to like the non-Christian, right. And what I feel like is happening is the non-Christian, right, is now becoming the political, um, you know, force in the Republican party. And that's very scary to me. And as, and as I'm looking at this, like a report card, (laughs) It doesn't look, there's a whole lot of poor and very poor ratings on this uh, (laughs) (laughs) report card, which is very, very fascinating to me as, as I'm looking through it and and mediocre, not too many excellent and okay. I like that there one is okay. And then it goes to excellent. But when, when I'm thinking like, I I guess my question is, uh, as I'm looking at this is we're coming up to a midterm, you know, you just had Lindsey Graham, he said, well, I accept the results of the 2020 election, you know, in May um, of 2021. Yeah, good job. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so for you. I accept the results. I mean, so you just work. have that, right? And 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 mm-hmm. he's saying we need to focus on the midterms. So for for just like normal people like me who are like in the center right, um, which, you know, again, now I feel like I'm 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 just in no man's land. But what what do you think we should do? You're not alone. You're in the no man's land where there are a lot yeah. of people out there who feel like they're in no And man's that's land. what I'm sensing. So what what do you want to say to the people in no man's land as we're coming up to this, you know, midterm election? Um, and, you know, everyone wants you to take sides. Everyone wants you to go to the conservative media. Like we have so many options available to us. So we should we pay into the Daily Wire and do their new thing to get, you know, go against cancel culture? I know this is a big question, but what what do you think we should do as just, you know, regular old people as we're moving forward into this upcoming midterm? I think, you know, I think it's really important to um, educate ourselves about candidates and what's really happening here, especially when it comes to the midterms. And I think that now is not the time for apathy. Um, it is a time to get involved and really get to know the candidates that are running and get involved in those primaries, become an active participant in our democracy. Um, I think, you know, that's what, you know, I think happened in the 2020 election. I think a lot of people came together um, to really change the course of what was happening here. And I think it's going to need to happen again. And I think this we're in this for a while. I think this is going to happen for several election cycles where we are going to have to really actively work to, I would say, purge a lot of these extremists um, from office. 
Um, and, I'm, you know, I'm, fortunately, most of them are on the Republican side. I mean, they're on the far right of it. And, you know, to your point about um, the non-Christian um, extreme angle or whatever, I think what I have always um, found so super offensive is a lot of them who cloak themselves as the event with the evangelical yes. Christian when their behavior is so hypocritical. I can't tell you that is something that I just, it, it, I find it so abhorrent <laughs> and, and it makes me upset. Yeah. Um, you know, just like the backing the blue narrative that was pushed. I, I love our law enforcement and I love our military. And that is, you know, I am a Homeland Security person. And yeah, do I think that there needs to be some reform there? And yeah, we've seen a lot of bad things happen, but fundamentally, yes, I think I back the blue, but I don't back the blue in a hypocritical manner. And it makes me, it is angering and infuriating to say you back the blue, but then, you know, you, when you talk about January 6th, disregard it, yeah. right? When there's images of law enforcement getting attacked and they're doing everything they can. And I see those images and I just think like, uh, how do you sleep at night? How do you look yourself in the mirror at night? And think that this is okay. Right. <laughs> mm, wow. So, so the um, with with regard to to faith, I want to I want to kind of change gears here just just for a minute um, and talk about um, faith in the White House and national security. Um, I, I guess maybe for starters, like, are, are you a person of faith? I am, um, but I will say this: I have always um been very compartmented about it if that makes sense because mm-hmm. i've always you know i'm a private person when it comes to my faith i was raised catholic um my mom is very very catholic still and i um but i've always i've not mixed faith in my job at work because you know when you're in national security you really kind of separate things i mean i check my politics at the door um, I didn't, you know, I, I know that it, it may seem otherwise now that I've enough spoken and I'm on the other side of it. And truth be told, I never, if you would have asked me even a year ago that I would be where I am today, I would have thought that you were completely off the rocker and I would be like, no, there's no way. I don't mm. know who that Olivia is. There and now you, here I you am. Are. <laughs> so, mm. um, that's just not how I was trained. You're trained not to talk to the media. This is just not the world that's familiar to me. Um, so I think that, you know, I'm more of a private person of it, but I certainly think that it certainly guides me. And I, I do believe that you reap what you sow and that, um, you know, you treat others with respect, like you Mm -hmm. wouldn't want others to treat you. Yeah. I, I, I mean, you know, when, when most people think about faith in the white house, especially during, Trump's administration, they they generally think about Pence and they think, okay, well, that's obviously why Trump picked him because like Trump, you know, without being too overly judgmental, was probably not necessarily a man of of a lot of faith. Um, I'm speculating here, but I I think I've got good good standing to make that assumption. Um, But they think of Pence like, okay, Pence is sort of like a very faith, faithful person. And I and I'm curious on how you know, how much did that play into, say, Pence's decisions and stuff? And I'm, I'm, I'm taking it on good faith that Pence is actually a, a devout Christian and actually, you know, does all the things that he says he does. Um, if not, I'd love to hear about it. But, um, you know, like, 
when 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 Pence came out against Trump, or maybe maybe stated differently, when Pence was um, compliant or supported some of the Trump things, I, I would just find that really difficult to to you know so, I don't know to just be behind if you were a person of faith. So maybe like can you can you speak on that at all? Like like how. How, how does a person like Pence that has a faith, you know, reconcile, you know, the decisions he had to support or or make? Yeah, I mean, it's a fair question. And I think that I personally at times wondered that as well. Um, like I saw I never saw Trump pray ever in my tenure in the White House anywhere. Um, and like I say that as a person who doesn't, you know, engage in religion in the office normally. I saw Prince, I, I saw Pence pray every single day. Mm. Um, even before meetings, or I saw him really, and I saw, and I heard him talk about his faith every, every day that I was around him. Um, and so I think, you know, every staff meeting started with a prayer that we had when we had all staff meetings, he would refer to his faith. And there were conversations that I certainly had with him directly where he would speak about God and he would say, you know, in this moment, or he would refer to, refer to God and say, well, God doesn't give us more than we can't handle, like things like that. And so do I think that he is a man of faith? Yes. I do think that he practices it. It is something that he strongly believes in. It's, it's who he is. I will say that in the evangelical community, it was really interesting meeting with a lot of the groups because sometimes, you know, they would let it slip out how much they detested the current president at the time. <laughs> um, but they always separated yeah. it. Um, and they always, they really like kind of drew a line between Pence and Trump. And I, you know, I always found that fascinating because I was like, you do realize that this is the Trump white house, right? Like it, Pence is part of this whole thing. Um, but he was always seen differently. And I think part of it in my conversations with some of these groups and people was that they felt that he was the calming sort of voice of reason at times when it was needed. And I think that he was seen as they were, they were just grateful that he was there in that role because they felt like hopefully it was, you know, he, it was, it would be, you know, less worse, I guess, in things that he was doing. I do think that at times he weighed in um, when he could. Uh, trying to do that. Um, but I also think he was an enabler mm. in a lot of things. And there were definitely moments where I wanted him to, for example, condemn white supremacy, or I wanted to him, him to say black lives matter. I don't think there's any problem with saying that, um, you know, and I, but, and he wouldn't. And it, it was hard for me to sort of reconcile that with, with my Pence, because like, he was a good boss to me. He was always very kind always respectful. I don't think there's anyone on the national security team or the, or the office of the vice president at the time that would say that he ever behaved otherwise. Um, that is just who Pence is. Um, he is the consummate gentleman and he was always respectful to people on the task force. Even when he disagreed with the doctors, he was never, um, he never spoke to them the way I heard Trump speak hmm. to them at times. Um, and that's, to me, that is really a sign of your faith and how you be treat people and with respect. And, and that is who Pence is. And, you know, I often sometimes wonder, like, does that play a role today? I, I keep wanting him 
to just be stronger and, you know, condemn um, Trump and walk away from it and walk away from Trumpism, but he can't seem to do that. And I have to say, I was mm. really upset um, after January 6th and what had happened and, you know, the, he was, his life was put at risk. And so it was the life of many others. And then he writes that op-ed about election integrity, which kind of leans that direction of the big lie. And I was just like, what is it going to take? You can finally, I was hoping that he would just take the party with mm. him, right? I was hoping that he could say, all right, so I somehow survived the past four years and people called for my hanging and I didn't get hung um, by the grace of God, I think he would probably say. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, and so this is over. This has gone on and the train has fallen off the tracks and we're going to start moving in a different mm. direction. But he hasn't done that. Right. And I think when you look at a lot of others, I they, it's it, shocking to me. To see like Nikki Haley and others, people that I used to look up to and think, hey, that's a smart woman. She's, you know, she survived the Trump administration. She's one of the only people that got a farewell in the Oval <laughs> even after she's leaving. I mean, how do you pull this off? And then she turns around and says, I'll, yeah, I'll support Trump. And they're all mm. back in on it. And that is just what's really You know, I, I got so much stuff stirring in my brain as you're talking because it, it really resonates with me. And there's this part in the book of um, book of Acts, which is kind of the history book for the New Testament or the Christian church. It's like the earliest history book and Christians consider it, um, you know, like a scripture. And uh, there's this part where the uh, where the apostles um, are taken before this like group called the Sanhedrin. They're they are the authority in the Jewish world at the time. And they basically say you can't say the name of Jesus anymore. And they beat them. Um, and, and their response to them is that um, uh, I have to obey God over man. Like I'll obey men to a point, And then once it crosses that line, I have to obey God over man. And it's almost like you're looking at like the, it feels like the evangelical church has been like just this political puppet of times of the Republican party and, and vice versa. Like they both benefited from each other, I think. Um, and kind of an unholy matrimony of sorts, I would say. And I think that like, so when, when you have these, like, like you have all of this like interconnection there, um, it seems to me like it's going to be more difficult to be someone of outspoken faith in, in our political climate, like it was a place where you could in uh, outspoken faith and conservative values, like I would say really biblical values um, overall, it's going to become more difficult. That's just my opinion. So when you are a person of faith and you said you grew up Catholic and, and Mike Pence was there and he was praying and, and things like that, like how is it, how do you find people reconcile or figure out the tension between obeying God and man between their faith and the political decisions they have to make. I mean, you said you basically compartmentalized, but I feel like that compartmentalization can only go to a point because even for you, it seems like there was a breaking point, right? Where the compartmentalization didn't work. Now, maybe that wasn't faith-based in that decision per se, but it was this, Hey, there's a line that's been crossed now. And so how do you think, like even your own experience and, and seeing other people of faith and, and watching what happened with Trump and then Pence, who has been 
praying like how do you how how can someone now who's Christian says I want to be like one of my son wants to be the next you know the president of the United States one day and should I pray for him to be the president of the United States or should I say no God never let him be the president of the United States because that means he's not going to be a Christian anymore and he's going to be you know whatever a racist and a crazy person now I'm just but like what's gonna like like you know I want my son to believe or my daughter to believe my daughters to believe they could be the president of the United States, but I never want them to do that at the, at the cost of their faith. So what, what do you think? Is, is it, a, can, can we still do it? What's the road ahead? You know, I, it's complicated, I think in today's political landscape, right. And you see people sort of, you see a lot of bending of people's principles and morals and compromising them. And I think that that's what it really comes down to is really, I think it's time maybe to get back to saying, look, I won't compromise. This is who I am. Um, But the problem is, I think that palace intrigue and power, the allure of power is what in the end, I think people end up compromising their own morals or beliefs and faith for that palace intrigue, I would say. And Yes, I think that you should tell your son or daughter to run for president, Um, but that you need to stay true to yourself. And I think what we're seeing here is a pattern of people who, if you look a lot of these a lot at a lot of these people starting out, they're really different, and they're saying different things than what they were saying back then. And I know that that is the nature of politics, but I really hope that we can get back to a place where we get back to actual people who are running based on their principles and representing their constituencies rather than sort of the politics of grievance, I guess, that we're seeing now, right? Where it's really not based on, we're not arguing over taxes. We're not arguing over real policies. We're not solving the immigration situation, right? It's more just divisiveness. Um, And I think that you know, I think it's actually scary because it seems to be that right now that's what sells. And I am concerned about the fundraising that some of these people are doing based off of sort of this behavior. Um, and I think that that is incumbent. That is where I think, you know, donors are important and paying attention to what's really happening here. Um, and where are your values in terms of where you're donating and the type of people that you're supporting? Um, but I think when it comes I still believe that there are so many people um, that are truly good people that are people of faith. And um, you, you don't want to discourage the true people of faith from getting involved in politics, right? Because at the end of the day, it's about your moral compass and your integrity and the greater good. And if you really are a person who subscribes truly to those beliefs and values, then that is really what's going to be your call to serve. Um, and I think that speaks to many different, you know, whether it's faith or just, you know, your dedication to the country. I think we've, we, there's a lot of people who have lost that. I think they've lost their way in office, you know, and all, you know, I, I know people will give me, may, you know, criticize me and be like, Olivia, this has been happening for years in the Republican party. You've been living under a rock and Mike Pence is a terrible person in Indiana. Like, I was not involved with Mike Pence back in Indiana, right? I came there to the White House to work as his Homeland Advisor and really to try to like do the best thing I could in that role. Um, And do I think, you know, I wish that Mike Pence was a stronger person when it came to that politically. 
But, you know, at the end of the day, he decided to go work in a Trump White House. And when there is, you know, you know what you're getting into when you do that. I mean, Trump does not. uh, The one thing about Donald Trump is that he is um, as much as, you know, he calls fake news, fake news. He he, he is not fake. (laughs) He is who he is. And he shows you who he is repeatedly over and over again. Yeah. Um, I don't know when some of these Republicans will ever learn that, that the loyalty only goes one way. It is not a two-way loyalty street in the Trump world. Um, I, I don't know why it's so hard for them to learn that lesson, but the rest of us certainly see it. Um, but yeah, no. And I think, you know, I, I don't, I think faith is critical in our country. Um, and I, I think it's to be very candid I think it's been hurtful what has happened. Um, it has been hurtful to yeah. to Christians and people, communities of faith on what's happening here politically, because I think that same thing. I also caution people, you know, when we talk about when people talk about, you know, socialist Democrats or whatever, I hate mm. that term. I'm, you know, that's that I'm, I, I, I just, I don't like, like that because it's a, again, painting a broad brush. No, they're not socialist. Democrats. Bannon is not a socialist. Like, okay, you can joke with that, but you, you're taking, you've taken it too far. Right. No. And I, I think when you make blanket statements like that, you know, or when you turn around and say all Republicans are racist, no, that's not true. You know, we've, we've got to get back to where we're not labeling people so extremely, because I think that that's also adding fuel to the fire. And I think what's happened here in terms of Christianity and some of these louder voices who I would say are not actually walking their faith and living their faith, um, but they're certainly capitalizing it, I think um, has been, is disrespectful and damaging um, to people of faith. I, I, I think that, you know, just like I say about constituencies and Americans who deserve better, I think there are true Christians out there who really believe yeah. in their faith. And I think it's um, a shame um, yeah. what has happened. Yeah. Um, so Olivia in the, the remaining time we've got, I've got two quick yes or no questions that you probably won't be able to answer yes or no, but, um, <laughs> that they they were submitted by some of our listeners, uh, that knew you were going to be on the show. So I'm going to, I'm going to shoot them to you and feel free to answer them how you like. Uh, so the first question is from one of our listeners, Corrigan, um, out of Georgia, who, who asked, do you, feel there is a domestic terror threat of consequence from white nationalists yes yes sir okay all right that's good that's an easy one all right i'm very (laughs) very concerned about that right now uh the second question is from sarah from indiana um and her question is is building a wall really a reasonable security response to the immigration problem no okay all right that's good now (laughs) i think if you ask the cartels they're probably laughing because they're like you know there's tunnels I think like, no, I, I, I mean, it can be a deterrence measure, but mm-hmm. I think that all of that money could actually have been focused on actually, you know, other tools or actually solving some of the root problems, right? Like why not spend on actually figuring out how we yeah. resolve this or why don't we spend on, you know, supporting um, these countries and the root yeah. causes there and investing in that to solve some of these problems, um, I, I, there's a reason that they're coming to America, right? They're um, looking for a better, better life. I mean, mm-hmm. so you can't blame them. I, you know, I've seen that crisis firsthand. I grew up in a household mm-hmm. where, you know, 
people used to offer my parents their children in Mexico because they would have a better life. Mm. I, until you really see that and understand what it's like, I can't imagine what it's like to be a parent and, and willingly say, I want my child and I want them to have such a better life. And I think they'll have a better life in America that I'm willing to give my child away at the risk of never seeing my child again. Yeah. Put yourself in those shoes. And that is a different reality that really changes the conversation on a border wall to me. Got it. Yeah. So, so my, my last question for you. um, So we're recording this on Wednesday and today the house is expected to take a vote on the January 6th commission. Um, All signs kind of point, that it's probably going to pass the house, um, even though uh, Rep Scalise is trying to whip it. But I don't think um, it's probably going to find much success. And Mitch McConnell just recently came out right before we recorded this saying he doesn't support it. Um, my guess is probably for political reasons. <laughs> and uh, uh, so so my my question to you is, that assuming that the commission is able to to make it through Congress and it starts like what are what are some questions that you would have? that you would like to see answered um, as a part of the commission? Yeah, I think um, like, I think there's a lot of important lessons that we can learn from a commission, just similar to the 9-11 commission, right? We learned a lot mm-hmm. about fixes that we had to make in the national security apparatus. And, um, and it was done in a very nonpartisan, bipartisan way. Um, like I, I'm still very unclear as to how the intelligence was there, yet it wasn't acted upon. I was perplexed by that the second that I actually saw the footage happening that day on January 6th of even before they actually started to storm the Capitol. I was confused at the lack of the security parameter around the U.S. Capitol on that day, knowing that this was going to be a major event. And there were just things that I know that are just traditionally things that are done in the national security community. Like, why was there not a DHS threat assessment or announcement on a major event? This was a major event. That is traditionally something that happens. Um, if all of the intelligence was there in social media, like I was saying there was going to be violence that day. I said that very publicly like two weeks before. Um, and then it plays out. And I, so I think we need to be asking like, what happened? Where did the intelligence failure to communicate and um, failure to act on the intelligence? Where did it really break down? Um, why was there not security set up around the Capitol? Like, I mean, when I, walked around DC last summer before that in summer of 2020. I mean, you would have thought we were back at 9-11 with the amount of fences and everything for protests and everything that was happening. That was not really there. It was, it was like looking at two very, I was just very confused about the entire thing. And I would be asking, you know, I would also be asking like, who were the actual people, even though we all know the answer to that by now, how are they communicating it seemed like a lot of them knew where they were going in the capital. They had maps and everything. How did they know all that? Why did they know where to go? Um, and I want to know, why did it take the National Guard so long to deploy when you have people like Larry Hogan calling and saying, we need help? When you have people within the White House or within the Capitol saying, we're getting overtaken, like the law enforcement has you know, been over, like they can't hold the line anymore. Why did it take so long? And I also want to know, what was Donald Trump doing? Why did he not? What what happened? Why did no one act when it was actually already happening and people's lives were in danger and you knew that it was playing out? The response, this went on for hours before anything, any before the cops had any backup, right? And so 
what happened there? Because I think that's all important, like, so that it never happens again, right? Because I, pretty much we showed the entire world what a massive national security failure that was that day. And for me, when you're looking at the bad guys, what we're, we're bad actors are watching this, they're like, hey, so man, here we are trying to fly planes into buildings and stuff when really we could just like <laughs> organize an entire thing and just charge a fortress and take everyone out. I mean, that's really mm-hmm. scary to think yeah. about, right? And these people were fairly organized. You know, I know that many of them have traveled, traveled from other states and made the long haul and they were really um, there um, to really take action. And so when we knew that they were there to take action, where did all these failures happen? And, you know, at the end, the bottom line is, I think it's the elephant in the room, right? No pun intended, but the Republicans, they're probably involved in it to a certain extent. I mean, you had a lot of people who were pushing the big lie, um, you know, were there tours given of people and were those same people in the group that attacked the Capitol? I mean, these are really important things, like the level of complicity here. Um, and it extends, you know, watching active duty military, like where is this in our ranks, get arrested? Yeah. I mean, this is, there is just a lot of questions that need to be asked here. And putting the politics completely aside, it's really just kind of getting to the bottom of it so that we understand really holistically what really happened because it's been piecemealing. You know, we've had people do congressional testimony and I think they've, it's become a political charade, right? When you have people saying, oh, it was peaceful tourists. But then, you know, I love that image of him where he's screaming <laughs> and fearing for his life. And I was mm-hmm. like, well, your definition of a peaceful tourist and mine is very different then. <laughs> Yeah. Because, you know, when I ride a roller coaster and you tell me it's a scary roller coaster, I pretty much assess it for what it is and I'm going to scream. So like peaceful tourists, but you're screaming and you look horrified and scared out of your mind. I don't know what happened between that moment and now where it's suddenly just you completely forgot what you lived. Because having been deployed and when you're in the trenches, you don't forget a scarring moment like that. You remember mm. it for the rest of your life. Mm. Um, wow. and so I think that. That is why a commission is important because we need to get to the bottom of this. And look, I think accountability is everything. And if you are an elected person who is in office right now and you were part of this entire thing, you do not deserve to be in office. You were unfit yeah. for office. Um, that is really where I am on that and the bottom line. And I think that that is also why you're seeing Republicans be like, oh, this would really not be a good news story. And the truth would be formalized in a manner. But the reality is we all know the truth mm-hmm. by now. Yeah. It's pretty well, you know, it's it's pretty the writing is on the wall. Yeah. 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 When I when I read a lot of the uh, um the, I don't know, the the charging documents from some of the people that have been arrested by the FBI, you like you do see this theme of why they did it. And it's almost like a lot of people that were involved just want to turn a blind eye and say, well, it wasn't Trump, you know, but you know, I mean, you got people, I think I read one just today where they're like, yeah, like Trump was going to, you know, like claim insurrection act thing. And then he's going to bail us all out of jail. And, and I mean, and it's not just like an isolated event. It's like, there's a lot of people that are charged that 
have that same mentality. I mean, I, I would love for them to subpoena Trump. I don't know if that would ever happen, but um, I think that would answer yeah. a lot of questions. I mean, what would Mike Pence say about that moment? Yeah. Exactly. Well, well maybe um, we can get well, him on the podcast um, and find out. Well, yeah, thank you so much, Olivia, for, for spending some time with us. We, uh, we really enjoyed it. We, we appreciate your insight. We, um, we, we love yes. having you on. We'd love to have you back sometime. And yeah, and, and just, just good luck with the Republican Accountability Project. And if there's anything we can do on our end to yes. kind of help, you know, don't, don't hesitate to ask. Thank you. And, I, you know, um, I think the important thing um, for the Accountability Project is I mean, if you're interested, get involved, you know, reach out to us. Um, we will certainly want, you know, run, run for office if you're interested in it, right? If you, I think now is the moment really to get, to get involved and be more mm-hmm. active um, and really take an active role right now. Cause what is happening right now is obviously not okay. I'm really worried about what this means for the next decade for our country. Mm, yeah, me, me too. Well, hopefully maybe uh, going back to our earlier conversation, maybe UFOs will come well before <laughs> the next election. So <laughs> maybe yeah. they could pick up a few bad apples in Congress right now and pick them and like them. <laughs> yes, yeah. Mars is nice this time of year. <laughs> so I've heard. Yes, I don't know. Well, now, well, thanks so much yes. for having me on. Yeah, thanks again, Olivia, and uh, we will uh, see you next time. Bye.